Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatchard, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword Program here on our fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, KMBG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, and where it all started, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword Program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, where we use these wonderful wonderful Catholic radio waves to get out and um, try to dissect things a little bit and, and maybe go into more detail so that we can um, explain things in, in the detail that they need to be. In our day and age, it seems like most folks aren't much interested in anything past what that fits on their cell phone screen, but sometimes truth is a little bit more complicated than that. I remember one time I was thinking, you know, this whole Christianity thing, why does it have to be so complicated? Why can't we just make it simple and, you know, like people have tried to do in the past and just, well, believe in Jesus and call it good enough. But then you go, for example, and read St. Paul's letter to the Romans, you know, just a masterful piece of work. When you read Romans, you kind of look at that and you say, well, there must be a lot more to this Christianity thing than maybe what we initially thought. Because St. Paul takes, you know, quite a bit of time and paper to go into it um, in the letter to the Romans, you know, and the rest of his writings as well. So maybe it's not as simple as everybody thinks it is. And I think ultimately maybe it is simple and just a matter of question of loving God and our neighbor. But how we do that, how that all kind of... um, you know, plays out is, is, is sometimes a little more complicated. So that's what we're going to look at. Anyway, today what I have, there's a man named Monsignor Charles Pope, and um, he, he wrote a, a blog or what, I don't know what you call the dang thing, it got off the internet, called The Progressive Stages of Sin. And so if you want to, you know, go back and find the, the original source for this, just Google Monsignor Charles Pope the progressive stages of sin, and I'm sure it'll take you to the original source for this. And um, I'm not going to read the whole thing at you because that's not what radio is about, more of a dialogue here. What I want to look at, he has these stages of sin that have been identified by St. Alphonsus Liguori, and there's five stages of it, all right? And we're going to kind of go through this a little bit. We'll go through the stages. I'll just read them off to you. And then um, we'll go back and we're going to um, dissect them, you know, piece by piece. And um, as we go along, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be adding in some things that I've noticed just out in the culture at large and, and see if we can make all this make a little bit more sense. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and read Monsignor Pope's introductory paragraph to his um, work here and see what it says for you. He says, we are living in times when many are doubling down on their sin. As the darkness grows, many fiercely defend their sinful practices. This is especially evident in the matter of abortion. The science could not be clearer that there is a unique, beautifully formed, distinct human life in the womb of the pregnant mother with a heartbeat, brain activity, alternating sleep and wake cycles, and the ability to feel pain. Despite this, many demand that all limits on abortion be removed. They shout and celebrate abortion, rejoicing in the dismemberment of bodies in the womb and all the while considering themselves morally superior to those who support life. Now, there I think, you know, Monsignor Pope has pretty much laid it out as clear as he can. I would add to that, when you look at people doubling down on sin, I mean, my gosh, you know, the month of June now is um, supposedly Pride Month. And um, you can't, you know, turn on the TV without seeing some rainbow insignia down the corner of the, of the screen somewhere as we're supposed to be celebrating sodomy. 
Um, I remember I saw saw it put rather succinctly the other day that, you know, we're, we're told that if we don't celebrate, you know, I don't know how much I can get away with this saying on, on the radio, but if we don't get away with celebrating sodomy or anal sex and STD, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, and, you know, when the, when the people go to these pride parades, you know, carrying around all sorts of vulgar and disgusting things to, you know, celebrate all this stuff. But yet, if I say, well, I want to celebrate, you know, the fact that, you know, my heritage is such great people as Walt Whitman, Dostoevsky, Albert Einstein, Plato, Aristotle, St. Thomas Aquinas, Pope St. John Paul the Great. You know, if I say, I'm proud of my heritage too, well, then I'm a bigot and a racist and a hater and things like that. And so, again, you, you can see you know, what Monsignor Pope is, what he's onto here, is that, you know, the, you know these people re, you know, celebrate abortion, we celebrate sodomy and all these things, while considering themselves morally superior to those who support life, while considering themselves morally superior to those who support you know, normalcy to those who support or those who believe in, you know, you know, noble things that have been brought to us by great people. So Father Pope goes on to say, how does it happen that so many obstinately persist in sin and promote weakness until they're ultimately lost? As with all progressive diseases, sin is a sickness that moves through stages, further debilitating and hardening the sinner in his ways. And so St. Alphonsus Liguori kind of lays out these five um, stages. And I'm just going to read you the five stages, and we're going to go back and look at them piece by piece. The first stage is impairment. The second stage is indifference. The third stage is incapacity. The fourth stage is incorrigibility. And the fifth stage is indisposition, okay? Now, you know, we'll just kind of, we have the words there. Impairment, indifference, incapacity, incorrigibility, and indisposition. Now let's kind of see what those mean and what they say. And I've got some other things we'll illustrate this with here as well. The first one is impairment, okay? And what that means is, is that, you know, whenever we sin, it makes some kind of a blindness. We've probably all been told this since we were little kids. I can remember being told, you know, by my parents, being told by the sisters that taught us in the Catholic schools, saying that, you know, if we do one thing wrong, then it sets us on a road to accept other things wrong. I remember one time one of the sisters was telling us, you know, you might think you're getting away with something by stealing a piece of candy at the store, and the next thing you know, you're going to be stealing cars. And at the time, we are going, oh, come on, sister, you know, give me a break. You know, someone steals a piece of gum and they're going to go out and steal a car. Well, that's exactly what happens. You know, it starts there, you know, that we get, as the book of wisdom, chapter 2, verse 21 says, our own malice blinds us, okay? It produces a kind of a blindness. And when we accept one thing, then we just kind of go down the road to accepting worse and worse things. And I think that when we look at the habitual nature of sin, when we do this stuff over and over again, you know, before too long, we just kind of accept everything. And I, and I think that... Um, Probably, I, I always kind of wonder, I'm almost 60 years old now, I wonder if, is it really getting worse? For example, like if I was to talk to a 10-year-old kid, would they see, you know, look around and see the world is getting worse and worse, or is it just the world they live in? And I've been in it longer than they have, and so I just see this stuff that's kind of gotten progressively worse. You know, maybe it's just maybe the longer you live, the more you look around and kind of the more disordered stuff you see, I don't know. 
But again, that first stage is impairment in that, you know, we just kind of get blinded. We kind of, you know, just sort of kind of go, well, you know, what's the hurt? I know that I've heard many, many people say, and it's kind of, it's, it's a good thing. This is kind of coming around. I remember when the whole internet pornography thing started, you would hear people say, look, what I do in my house with my computer and my internet connection behind closed doors is nobody's business but my own. I think people are starting to see through that. I've been really edified to hear, especially the number of younger people that are saying, you know, I had one, you know, 15, 16 year old kid one time tell me that you don't consume pornography, it consumes you. That was a pretty good insight. You don't consume pornography, it consumes you. And I think more and more people are kind of seeing that, that, you know, they might've thought that, well, you know, hey, what I do behind closed doors is my own business, but, more and more people are seeing that it just isn't true. And that's a good thing. That's a, that's a good sign. You know, maybe, you know, the things would turn around. The second one, and I've preached on this many times, that, um, you know, the, the sin of indifference. Indifference is a very insidious thing. It's very dangerous. You know, if you, if you play the opposite game, if you say, well, what's the opposite of hot? Say cold. What's the opposite of high? Low. What's the opposite of wet? Dry. Now, if someone says, what's the opposite of love? And people go, hate, that's not true, okay? You stop and think about that. You know, you cannot be high and low at the same time. Either you're up on the 10th story or you're down on the ground floor. You can't be high and low at the same time. Either you're wet or you're dry. If you're standing out in the rain, you're wet. If you come in, if you don't go out in the rain, you're dry. You can't be both at the same time, okay? But it is possible to love someone and hate someone at the same time. You know, we can, you know, people can be madly in love with someone while at the same time being furious enough to probably want to even try to kill them, you know? I mean, just to ask the parents of any teenager. You know, we love those teenagers to death, but, you know, they can try our patience, right? And so the opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is indifference because it's impossible to love someone and be indifferent to them at the same time. Okay, and this second stage of sin of indifference is a very, very dangerous thing because once we become indifferent, then love goes out the window. And by love, I don't just mean, you know, having warm, fuzzy feelings for someone. I mean, you know, the capacity and the desire to give everything over for the sake of the beloved. And um, whenever you have indifference, that can't happen. Okay, and so. Whenever we look at the state of indifference, when people just kind of go, yeah, you know, whatever, you know, who am I to judge? Do you want to do your thing? I'll do my thing. Just don't judge me and I won't judge you. I mean, that's, that's cancerous. That's cancer to the soul. And, um, and so that's pretty bad news. We've got to be careful with that. Um, the next one is incapacity, okay? And um, Fairbairn Senior Pope says, as sin deepens its hold, the willingness and even the capacity to repent decreases. Why is this? Because, as St. Augustine says, when lust was served, it became a habit. And when habit was not resisted, it became a necessity. Okay? Now, think about that. Think about, you know, you remember, I don't know if you've ever seen, probably you've seen those Rube Goldberg machines. You know, back in the 20s or 30s, there was a guy named Rube Goldberg. And he, he would draw these cartoons. I think it was for some, it might have been for the New York Times or some, the Saturday Evening Post or something like that. But he would draw these cartoons that would show, you know, some guy, you know, he lights a match and it burns a string, which causes the weight to fall and the weight, you know, 
kicks a bowling ball and the bowling ball rolls down the steps and then it the bowling ball then hits a mouse trap and the mouse trap you know you've seen these things you know the, the guy named Rube Goldberg was the guy who who wrote these cartoons and in the end you know the thing would you know crack an egg into a frying pan or something but you know it's entertaining it's it's fun to watch but um, the the idea of a Rube Goldberg contraption has come to symbolize the idea of you know there being you know, this, this, this incredibly complicated series of events we go through to accomplish something simple, all right? And so I think that that's what, um, what, what this incapacity is talking about, that whenever we talk about how, you know, sin deepens its hold on the sinner in this way, when, when we look at incapacity, it, you know, it becomes a habit, and when, it be, and when it's not resisted, it becomes necessary. What do we mean by that? Here's an example. I have, I've got zillions of examples on this one. Say you have a man and a wife, they get married, okay? And, you know, they're hopping along in their marriage. And, you know, as happens in every marriage, there comes a point when things just aren't going as good as they used to. And so, you know, they, you know, there might be some times when one of them sleeps on the couch and the communication isn't the greatest. And then after a while, there's kind of a thaw and they start to talk again and they, you know, they make up and, you know, try to pick up and go on. Well, great. I mean, that's what human relationships are all about. You know, we, we get through the good times and the bad times together and hopefully come out on the other side better. Okay, now, the thing is, is that, you know, we have one of the entire Ten Commandments. Ten percent of the Ten Commandments are devoted to you shall not commit adultery. Okay, why? Because adultery is devastating to marriages. We know that. So, imagine this. You got Billy Bob and Lulabelle. And Billy Bob and Lula Bell, you know, they, they're, they're a typical married couple. You know, they're, they're, you know, slugging it out, not really slugging it out, hitting each other, but they're, they're slugging it out with life, trying to do the best they can, trying to work things out and everything. And they kind of hit a rough spot and, you know, the communication hasn't been the best. They haven't really, they haven't made love to each other in, you know, a couple of months and, you know, just kind of wondering, why did I even get married to begin with? And then Billy Bob has to go out of town. And Billy Bob's out of town on some kind of a business meeting or something like that. And he's at the hotel bar at the end of a long day of, you know, talks and presentations. He's had about enough. And so he's sitting there at the hotel bar having a drink, getting ready for he goes to bed. And, you know, there's a seductive woman there. And Billy Bob is thinking, you know, you know, Lula Bell and I haven't really, you know, been together for quite some time. You know, some female companionship might be kind of nice about now. But Billy Bob says, yeah, problem is I don't want to have to try to explain an unwanted pregnancy. And so while I would really like the companionship of this woman, sorry, lady, you know, can't go down that road. Okay, well, I'm good. But then what happens? In our day and age, because of the wonderful world of contraceptives and so on, somewhere along the line, after Billy Bob and Lula Bell had their 1.6 kids, um, Billy Bob says, okay, we're done having kids now. He trots on down to the doctor's office and gets a vasectomy. So now Billy Bob knows he can't get anybody pregnant. And so it's the same thing. He and Lula Bell have kind of hit a low spot in their marriage. He's in a position where he's being, you know, tempted and seduced. And he goes, eh, what the hurt? You know, what the heck? What's the hurt? I can't get her pregnant. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And so, you know, maybe, and so he, you know, goes to bed with this woman and, and then, you know, the rest they say is history. Or again, maybe it's, maybe it's someone closer to home. Maybe it's an old high school flame that he had and they run into each other somewhere along the line and he starts having an affair with her because there's nothing to fear because he can't get her pregnant. 
But then, you know, Lulabelle finds out about it. And now, you know, what could have been a salvageable marriage is now really in peril because Billy Bob had this affair that was facilitated by his vasectomy, all right? And so anyway, then Billy Bob and Lula Bell end up getting a divorce. And so now Billy Bob decides he wants to marry his whole high school flame, Peggy Sue. And so Billy Bob and Peggy Sue get married. And then after they get married, Peggy Sue says, but Billy Bob, I really want to have a baby with you. And Billy Bob says, well, I had a vasectomy. Well, let's go down and get the vasectomy reversed, which is very tricky to do. And, and the results of vasectomy reversal usually aren't that great. Some, a lot of people have a hard time conceiving after they try to reverse that surgery. But they go ahead and give it a try, and then they still can't conceive, and this causes all kinds of grief. Well, there's your Rube Goldberg machine for you, right? What happened? If Billy Bob would have never had the vasectomy, he probably would have not had the affair to begin with, and then he would have stayed with Lulabelle. Their marriage would have remained intact, their marriage, their home, their family, all right? And maybe they would have worked through things. But as it stood, it's like, okay, we had our 1.6 kids, now we have the vasectomy, then we have the affair, then we want to get the vasectomy reversed for the sake of the new spouse, and so on. That's the Rube Goldberg machine, okay? Why? Because whenever we get to incapacity, Sin deepens its hold on the sinner, and when, it, when, when the habit is not resisted, it becomes a necessity. Here's another Rube Goldberg machine for you. Um, and again, it kind of goes back to family and education. That when you have, you know, it used to be, you know, people were very careful about who they would have sex with because, you know, if you have a baby out of wedlock, you know, this causes all kinds of problems. Well, ever since the glorious 1960s, when we, we poured all kinds of money into all these various programs and so on to help the unwed mothers, which in and of itself is probably kind of a noble thing, but now you're paying for a certain kind of behavior. And every whenever you pay for a certain kind of behavior, you get more of it. And so what happens? It used to be you had boy meets girl, girl meets boy, boy and girl fall in love, boy and girl get married, man and woman you know, start having their, their, their family. And then from the home, you know, where the children are cared for, then they take their, their lessons from the home into the school, and the, you know, the schools do a good job of teaching, and, you know, things work out pretty much okay. Now, 40 plus percent of our kids go to school without a mom and a dad at home, okay? That's 40% overall. In the Hispanic community, it's like 65 or 70%. In the black community, it's over 80%. And so you have all these kids going to school without a mom and a dad at home. And, you know, the kids go to school, you know, with, from these unstable households, and they don't do very well in school. Well, does the school system say, sorry, all you 40 to 80% of kids that are coming to school from unwed mothers and, and from single-parent households, I guess you're just at a disadvantage, so you're just going to have to fail your classes. You know, sad times for you. No. What do we do? We hire on all kinds of extra help at the schools. We hire paraprofessional educators. We have before school programs so we can give the kids breakfast. We have school lunch. We have after school programs. On and on, all these things we keep on heaping on top, one thing after another after another, to make this very complicated Rube Goldberg contraption. Whereas if we just had mothers and fathers who got married and took care of the children that they brought into the world, we would need all this stuff. We know we wouldn't need it because we didn't need it until we started providing the means to have, you know, all kinds of, you know, again, single mothers and unwed mothers and things like that. 
And so again, it, it's just another you know part of this this Rube Goldberg contraption, where again, as Monsignor Pope says, when the habit is not resisted, it becomes necessity. And so again, that that's um, our stage three is incapacity. Stage four is incorrigibility. And what that means is that the bad habit hardens the heart and the habitual sinner remains increasingly unmoved and mired in contempt of any correction or remedy. Okay, those are Monsignor Pope's words. Okay, the habitual sinner increasingly is unmoved and is mired in contempt for any correction or remedy. That's definitely where we're at right now. Because again, you know, when when you listen to what I just got through saying about people, you know, getting vasectomies and unwed mothers and the effects on children and, um, and education and so on. You know, can you imagine if I tried saying that on CNN? You know, if I, if I had some kind of a national forum or if I, was, if I was addressing the National Education Association or the teachers union, they have a big convention every year. If I was to get in front of them and say, you know, if we had a ring in the words I do, most of these problems would go away. You know, do you think people would go, gee, yeah, I guess we really kind of have gotten a little bit far off base there. That's a pretty good point. You know, we should think about that and maybe start, see if we can encourage people to kind of go in that direction. Is that going to happen? Not only no, heck no, that's not going to happen. Why? Because, you know, there is no remorse and it's been replaced with angry indignation at any kind of attempted correction. All right. And, you know, we we find that um, that in, in situations like this, St. John Chrysostom says that people, when they get sunk in the abyss of darkness, they despise corrections, sermons, censures, hell, and they despise God. They despise everything. And again, I think all you have to do is look at all the people that are making all the noise out in the streets these days, and you can see they despise everything. And they especially despise anything that is good, true, and beautiful. They want nothing to do with the good, the true, or the beautiful. And so, um, you know, when we get to the stage of incorrigibility, that's kind of what we're looking at. One of the things I think that goes along with that are these, um, I don't know what you call them, but they're just kind of these very simplistic sort of, um, I don't know what you would call them. I, I call them sophistries. But here's one, one I found. It's kind of a cartoon of sorts, and it has two columns in it. One says religion, one says science. In the religion column, it has a picture. It looks like a priest, and he's got some kids sitting there on the foot of the altar in the church. And it says, religion, point one, is taught to young children. Point two, taught to believe on faith. Point three, discouraged from doubting. And point four, threatened with hell if they don't believe. Science, on the other hand, and they show kind of a college classroom here. Science is taught to young adults, told to rely on evidence, encouraged to doubt, and may get a Nobel Prize if they find an error. One road to indoctrination, one route to knowledge. So religion is indoctrination, science is knowledge. Those of you that have heard me on the radio before, just kind of in the, in the interest of um, total transparency and, and disclosure, I was a scientist before I was a theologian. You know, I have my Bachelor of Science degree from K-State. I took my share of my chemistry and calculus and physics and all that kind of good stuff, and I still love science. But the thing of it is, when, when people, you know, try to reduce this down to stuff like this. You know, religion is taught to young children. Well, so is science. Religion, you're told to believe on faith. Well, I'm sorry, scientists, but if you're a true scientist, you know that science is ultimately based on faith as well. If by faith you mean believing in something that you cannot see, then that's science. 
because everything in science starts from the atomic theory and you cannot see an atom, okay? Atoms are invisible, they will always be invisible because anything you would try to see the atom with is itself made up of atoms. So how can you see an atom with an atom? Furthermore, how can you see something smaller than an atom with something that's made up of atoms? You know, you will never see an electron. You will never see a proton or a neutron. We have lots of evidence for electrons, protons, and neutrons. And because of that evidence, we say, hmm, there must be protons, neutrons, and electrons. Therefore, there must be atoms, and the whole atomic theory falls into place, and it all makes sense, and it works great. No problem with that whatsoever. Well, isn't that kind of what we do with God? We can't see God, but there's all kinds of evidence for God. And from the evidence for God, then once we believe that God exists, based on the evidence, then a whole bunch of other stuff falls into place and it works out great. So again, you know, this is a false comparison that religion you're told to believe on faith and in science you're told to believe, you're told to rely on evidence. That's not true, okay? The other one, it says in religion you're discouraged from doubting. That's not true either. I've taught high school, I've taught in Catholic high schools for over a decade. And I tell the kids, you doubt all you want, as long as the doubt drives you to find an answer, just like we do in science. Nothing wrong with that at all. If you have some kind of a doubt about your faith or some kind of doubt about God, go for it. Because don't be so arrogant as to think you're the first person to ever have this doubt, okay? All kinds of people have had these kind of doubts. And so in religion land, we're not discouraging anyone from doubting. We encourage them to doubt and to look for the answer because once you doubt for yourself and find the answer for yourself, your belief will be strengthened. Then this is the one here that says, threatened with hell if they don't believe. That is just patently false. You know, no one is, no one is ever threatened with hell if they don't believe. Um, you're threatened with hell if you do bad stuff, but no one's threatened with hell if they don't believe. I like this, may get a Nobel Prize if they find an error. <laughs> the Nobel Prize has turned into a big joke. If I was to be offered the Nobel Prize for anything, I would turn it down. So again, it says one route to indoctrination, another route to knowledge. The, these people that say this, they don't know what they're talking about. For example, when you look at the whole global warming hoax or the whole climate change hoax, a lot of people, if you sit there and say, excuse me, um, I think that what we see is a lot of, there are a lot of models that a lot of computer models that show that climate change is real. But when you look at the data, it's not. Now, does someone want to explain to me, you know, that discrepancy between what the, what the models predict and what the data actually shows? That's what a true scientist would do. But instead, what do they do? Oh, no, you know, you're a climate change denier. Well, isn't that, how's that any different than, you know, back in the days when they would brand someone a heretic? Okay, you know, there's a whole new route of indoctrination. You just have to be, allow yourself to be indoctrinated to the right stuff. If you allow yourself to be indoctrinated into, you know, the, the climate change group think, or if you allow yourself to be indoctrinated into the critical race theory, all that kind of nonsense that's going on, well, then you're enlightened. Okay, well, it's just indoctrination, another name. Here's another one. This is from, from some gal on, on, made some inane comment on the internet where she says, Christians are really trying to convince us that the God who murdered Bathsheba's newborn, killed the firstborn sons of Egypt, sent bears to murder little children, commanded Joshua to kill all the children in Jericho, now suddenly cares about unborn babies. Okay, so basically what she's doing is she's looking at the stuff that happened in the Old Testament and saying that, you know, God murdered Bathsheba's newborn child. No, he didn't. 
God killed the firstborn sons of Egypt. Yep, he did that. Um, but the thing is, is that whenever we talk about God taking life, that's God's prerogative because he's God, okay? God is the giver and the taker of life. And why does that properly belong to God? Because God has the capacity to give life back. You see, that's the difference between us and God. If I take someone's life, I cannot restore that life. When God takes someone's life, since he's the master and the Lord of life and death, when God takes someone's life, he is capable of restoring it. He can give it back. And so therefore, for God to do that, that's okay. But in our day and age, you know, when people, because of these stages of sin, have, you know, sunk down to the, these stages of indifference and incorrigibility and so on, they think of themselves as being God. And since they think of themselves as being God, they really resent God when God acts like God. And so, again, this is, you know, pretty serious stuff. So we're going to, I'm just going to kind of go back and review this just a second before the break. Our first statement, our first stage was impairment, where, you know, people just kind of get blinded to sin because they, because, you know, we commit it so often. Then there's indifference, and that's the one that's really scary because, you know, again, indifference is the opposite of love. Then there's incapacity. Um, when, ha- when sin becomes a habit, it is not resistant. It becomes necessary. We talked about the Rube Goldberg devices there. And then incorrigibility, where, you know, again, it, it hardens someone's heart, and they, you know, they just really get angry and indignant at any, at any attempt to, to correct. So um, we're going to stop there for a little break as we hear from the fine folks that make the Double-Edged Sword program possible here. And um, while we take that little break, again, just to remind you of our fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, you're listening to the Double-Edged Sword program on KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, and KVDM 88.1 Hayes, our Catholic radio station that started it all off for Divine Mercy Radio. I am Father Fred Gatchett. I'm the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina, the Rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, and part-time religion teacher at Sacred Heart High School. And you sit tight and we'll be back in just a second. Hey gang, we are back. You are tuned to the Double-Edged Sword Program here on our fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations. KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, KJDM 101.7 Lindsburg Salina, and our flagship station where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And here on the Double-Edged Sword Program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. I am Father Fred Gatchett, the Rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. I also teach part-time scripture at, um, at Sacred Heart High School here in Salina um, to sophomores. And on this installment of the Double-Edged Sword program, we've been talking about some an observation by um, Monsignor Charles Pope about the progressive stages of sin. And um, just kind of as a little reminder, um, if you just tuned in or, or if, you, if you stayed over from the break, um, this, there's five stages. The first one is impairment, where we just kind of become blinded to sin because we get used to it. The second stage is indifference, where we just kind of go, well, you know, what the heck? Um, We showed how indifference is the opposite of love um, because we can love and hate someone at the same time, but we can't love them and, and, and be indifferent to them at the same time. The next one is incapacity, and that's when, as sin deepens its hold, the willingness and even the capacity to repent decreases, okay? We saw how when, as St. Augustine says, um, when lust was served, it became a habit, and when habit is not resistant, it becomes a necessity. Um, We stopped before the, the break on incorrigibility, 
And um, that's when it really gets kind of dangerous because we find that um, when people are incorrigible, they become angry and indignant at any attempt to be corrected. And we see that people despise corrections, sermons, censures. They despise God. They despise everything. And when you look at the people that are making most of the noise, the people that are getting loud on the streets and so on, you can tell they're just full of spite for everything. You know, one of the little, a little cartoon that I ran across that kind of that sort of shows this, shows the, the venom in these people's minds. Um, it showed a picture of the Pope, uh, Pope Francis there. And he says, you mean that Mormons actually believe that Jesus came to America, that wearing magic underwear, they will ward off demonic attacks, and when they die, they will be teleported to a distant planet where they will become gods in their own right? That's ridiculous. Now, again, I don't know that much about the Mormon faith, but I think that's probably an unfair characterization of what Mormons believe. So, you know, this person starts off, you know, saying, you know, what Mormons believe is ridiculous. And he says, now, please excuse me. When he, again, this, this is in, supposedly in the words of the Pope. I really don't think that the Pope would belittle Mormons like that. But now the Pope is supposedly saying, and again, the Pope never said this. It's just, you know, coming from the, the vitriol of, of, the, of the cartoonist. Now, please excuse me while I eat some magic bread, which trans transforms into the actual flesh of a 2,000-year-old dead Jewish zombie. That's what, they're, that's what they're calling Jesus. So I can be forgiven for a sin I was born with because a magic rib woman was tricked into eating a piece of fruit by a talking snake. Okay? That's what we mean by incorrigibility. You know, when you look at the, the kind of stuff that gets, you know, on the, the late night comedy shows and stuff like that, you know, with people like Jimmy Kimmel and Bill Maher, and, you know, if you ever listen to those morons, this is what we mean by incorrigibility. You know, these are people that um, are, you know, you know, they're incorrigible. I mean, they're, they're so full of, of spite and anger and hatred, you know, there's no way you're going to talk them into anything different. Okay? So, the, you know, that's the, the incorrigibility part. Now, the thing is, there's a flip side to it, though. And, um, you know, because, again, in our day and age, and especially, I think, ever since um, January 6th of 2021, the, the vitriol and the um, heat against people of faith is really getting, to get, is really getting turned up, um, especially in the universities, in Hollyweird, and, um, you know, the, the, the various uh, media outlets and so on. But um, there, there's a man named Werner Heisenberg, and um, he's the father of quantum physics. And um, he, he came up with a thing called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, and he won a Nobel Prize for it, back when Nobel Prizes actually meant something. And, um, and, and Heisenberg says, the first gulp from the glass of natural science will make you an atheist. Okay? And this is what we're seeing now. You know, we see this in the universities and so on. People go and they take their science classes, and they're told by their so-called professors, you see, science explains things. You know, it's kind of like the cartoon I told you about in the first part of the program, in the first half. You know, religion is taught to young children. Science is taught to young adults. Religion teaches you to believe on faith. Science tells you to rely on evidence. Religion discourages you from doubting. Science encourages doubt. Religion threatens you with hell if you don't believe. Science may give you a Nobel Prize if you find an error. One is a route to indoctrination, the other route to knowledge. Well, again... You know, when people have that rudimentary, that first kind of experience of science, it kind of makes it easy to sort of go, well, yeah, I guess all this God talk is kind of silly um, because science explains it all. Well, it doesn't. 
I remember hearing a pretty good joke one time. There was, um, you know, there was a guy who appeared before God for judgment, and um, he was kind of one of these atheistic science kind of guys. And all of a sudden, he's looking at God face to face. God says to him, you know, well, what's the deal? You know, you, you say you don't believe in me. Now you see that I'm real. You know, why should I let you into heaven? And, and the guy very, you know, the scientist very, you know, arrogantly looking at God says, well, you know, God, we just kind of evolved beyond any kind of a need for you. And so I don't see why we have to believe in you because science explains everything just fine. And God says, oh, really? And so God scoops up a handful of dirt, forms it into a little clay man and blows life into its nostrils and makes a human being. And God says, there, top that. And so the scientist reaches down to get a handful of dirt and God says, "Uh uh-uh, you get your own dirt. Okay, you you sort of see how that what, what that joke is saying, you know that even you know for science to do what it has to do, it has to work with pre-existing matter and where that matter come from. Okay, they can dance around it all they want. But Heisenberg he says the first gulp of the glass of natural sciences will make you an atheist, but at the bottom of the glass God is waiting for you. Okay, I'm going to read that quote again. The first gulp from the glass of natural science will make you an atheist, but at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. That's from Walt Werner Heisenberg, the father of quantum physics. And so, you know, the the thing is, is that just because someone believes in science, believing in science and being a person of faith are not mutually exclusive. And um, when we see people of faith, you know, we kind of see that that that's definitely the case. Now, the last stage in Monsignor Pope's um, list of, you know, kind of his stages of, of sin is indisposition, okay? And by indisposition, what we mean is a hard heart. What we mean is people will get to the point where they just really see no point in repenting. Or maybe people think, well, you know, I'll go ahead and live my life as some kind of a heathen. You know, I'll, I can, you know, sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. I can you know, drink whatever it is I want to drink. I can smoke all the marijuana I want. And, you know, heck, you know, maybe if this religion stuff is true, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, I'll tell God I'm sorry and it's all good, okay? Well, you know, the thing is, is I just don't know that that's going to happen because I think what happens is, is St. Bernard says, the man on whom the weight of bad habit presses rises with difficulty. And that is to say, after a lifetime of incorrigibility and these, these other things that, that Monsignor Pope talks about, after a lifetime of that, after a lifetime of arrogance and you know spitting in God's face, you really think at the end of someone's life they're going to go, oh, that was all a big mistake. Gee, I'm sorry. I don't think that's going to happen, you know. And so I think that you know, we have to look at this a little bit more closely and say, you know, if this really gets us to a point of final impenitence, you know, and that's what the, what the catechism talks about, that when we get to the point of final impenitence, then it's lost. I mean, at the, at the, at the end of our life, it isn't that it's too late to repent on our deathbed. It's that after a lifetime of living like that, and after a lifetime of, of following, you know, what, what Holly Weird and, and the universities and, and, you know, all, the, all these, you know, atheistic forces in the culture with the way they're leading people, it's not even going to occur to them to repent. And then, you know, then there, there really is going to be kind of, kind of a problem there. Really, it's kind of like what Monsignor Pope says. He says, indeed, how can a sinner weakened and wounded by habitual sin have the strength to rise? Even if he sees the way out, he often considers the remedies too severe, too difficult, 
That is to say, why would I want to go to confession? After, you know, 30 years of the way I've been living, I go to confession, I just can't do it. I heard a, a pretty good anecdote about that the other day on Catholic Radio. That's why you should listen to Catholic Radio. Um, someone was telling the story about how there was a person that had gone through their whole life, very, you know, they jettisoned any attempt to live a Christian life, you know, somewhat earlier. And now here they are, you know, deciding, well, you know, that's really not got me very far. My life is a train wreck. I got to get back on track. I think I should go to confession. And so the person's going to try to go to confession, but they're really having a difficult time with it. They're really having a hard time mustering up the courage to go to confession. And so Jesus is waiting for the person and the priest in the confessional. And so, you know, Jesus is waiting, you know, from his, from his um, vantage point in eternity. And the devil shows up. Jesus says, well, you know, how about this guy? He's getting ready to go to confession. You know, what's up? You know, he says he's got too much shame to come to confession. And the devil says this. The devil says, I took away his shame. You know, part of me getting him to, you know, live the sinful life that he did, there were things that he would be ashamed to do. And so the devil says, I took away his shame so that he would do these evil acts. And now that he wants to repent of them, I gave him his shame back. Now that, that's really kind of a, a profound thing to think about. You know, that the devil takes away our shame, you know, to get us to do evil things that we would normally be ashamed of. And then once we're, you know, immersed in, in the filth of all that, and we want our way out, then the devil comes and gives our sense of shame back so that we won't repent of it, so that we'll have a hard time going to confession. And I think that, you know, this, this um, sense of the stage five of, of indisposition of, you know, people getting to the point where it's like, well, you know, after having, you know, been, after ha having been impaired, you know, kind of been blinded by sin, you know, by, by embracing it freely and then becoming indifferent to sin and then having the incapacity to do anything about it because, you know, sin deepens its hold on, on the sinner and then um, the, the willingness, even the capacity to repent decreases. Then we get to, again, to the incorrigibility, which is the, you know, the arrogant, you know, spouting of all sorts of nonsense. And I, I gave you some examples of that. You know, we get to the point there where finally when you get to indisposition, people are like, you know, I just, I just can't do it. You know, I'm, I'm either too ashamed or it's too much effort. It, it would just be too hard for me to try to embrace a life of virtue again. And, um, and so I'll, I'll just kind of, you know, live out the rest of my years in this, you know, in this mess that I've made for myself and just have to be content with it. Well, again, you know, the Lord has something better than that in mind for us. And so I think as we, as we look at these five stages of sin, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like, um, it, you know, exactly what Monsignor Pope says. You know, he says, thus, even on their deathbeds, many sinners remain unmoved and unwilling to change. The darkness is deep, their hearts have hardened, and their sloth has solidified. In these ways, sin is like a progressive illness, a deepening disease. It moves through stages in much the same way that cancer does. Repentance at any stage is possible but it becomes increasingly unlikely, especially by stage four, when the sinner becomes proud of his sin and joyful in his iniquity. I think that's kind of where we're at with a lot of things in our culture is that, you know, we, we become proud of our sin. You know, you look at this, again, this so-called pride month, waving the rainbow flag around. What are we waving the rainbow flag around about? We're waving the rainbow flag around about, you know, 
unnatural sex, of irresponsibility, of, of diseases, of, of ultimately death. And again, we're proud of it. We think, we think that we've made great progress by having more and more people get sick and die instead of embracing a way that would bring us to some kind of, you know, uh, the, the life that Jesus wants to give. We have life and we have it more abundantly, says in the Gospel of St. John. So again, I think that um, kind of, you know, winds down. We're winding down this installment of Double-Edged Sword. I want to take a, always take a moment at the end of every program to remind folks that if you want to contact us, the website for Divine Mercy is www.dv, V as in Victor, dvmercy.com. And if you go to the website, there's all kinds of good stuff there. There's the, the general schedule the programming schedule for everything going on with um, with Catholic Radio, all the various programs that we have. And for Divine Mercy Radio, we have two locally produced programs, the One Body Program and the Double-Edged Sword Program, which is really quite remarkable. A lot of um, Catholic radio stations just use the programming that comes from Ave Maria Radio or EWTN, but the, the programming is really good. There's no question about it. But here on Divine Mercy Radio, we have two locally produced programs, which is quite remarkable. So um, that's one thing. You can also look, um, look up archived um, installments of Double-Edged Sword and One Body um, if you want to go back and listen to uh, older um, installments of those programs. Maybe you missed one and you want to sit down and listen to it at your own leisure. You can do that. Also, uh, you can call the station um, whenever you want. If you have an, a, a question or you have a comment that you want to give to us, you know, we can do that. Also, you know, the old technological dinosaur here, um, you might check out the Divine Mercy app and download that. Because one of the things I found is on the, on the road, if, you, um, if, you're, if your telephone can be hooked in via Bluetooth to your radio in your car, um, I, figure, I figured this out. I can take my, my phone and I can go to the Divine Mercy Radio app, and then I don't have to worry about getting out, out, of the, out of the way of the signal, and I can't pick up the radio station anymore. It's always right there. And so make sure you check out our app. That works out pretty slick, too. Furthermore, then, like I said, feel free to um, call the station, contact the station if you have an idea for a, for a future um, idea for a program, and then we can do the homework for you and, and get that program on the air. So again, I am Father Fred Gatchett. I am the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. I'm the Rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina. I teach um, Old and New Testament to sophomores part-time at Sacred Heart High School during the school year. And you're listening, you've been listening to the Double-Edged Sword Program here on our fine family of Catholic, of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, and our station where it all began some years ago, KBDM 88.1 Hayes. On the Double-Edged Sword program, where we're cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, and we thank you for tuning in, and God bless you, and goodbye.